The Stolen Maniple Podcast is a production of St. Augustine of Canterbury Church, a Roman Catholic community of the personal ordinariate of the Chair of St. Peter, serving San Diego County, California. This episode features Father Samuel Keyes. Let's set the scene. It's me, a 17-year-old high school junior, hiding in the teacher's office, attached to the school publications room. I hear Mrs. M around the corner telling some angry boys that I must have already gone home. This is one of my early lessons on the power of words. It was a newspaper column gone awry. I said some words, some not particularly well-considered words, I can say in hindsight, suggesting that perhaps the school's favorite football players should not, in fact, be treated like gods. And in one afternoon, what was generally a happy status quo between jocks and nerds and all the usual high school cliques had become a battle zone. A sacrificial victim was needed. Thankfully, the bloodlust cooled somewhat by the next day. I got a lot of glares and some vaguely threatening questions in the cafeteria, but not much else. My aunt called my mom to explain that my cousin was embarrassed to be related to me. But in all of that, I was somehow at the same time thrilled at the sudden notoriety. To be popular and to be famously unpopular weren't the same thing, to be sure, but it was hard not to feel a certain righteous pride in having bravely rocked the boat. Was it brave, really? Maybe, maybe not. We'll come back to that question in a moment. First, let's dive into today's lessons. The great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12 is one of the more striking images of the New Testament and a vivid depiction of the communion of saints. The author exhorts us to persevere in the race that lies before us. And I think anyone who's been involved in any kind of public performance can identify with the scene, whether it's an actual race on a track, a speech, a game, a symphony. Knowing that you have people out there supporting you who want to see you do well can make all the difference. When paired with our reading from Jeremiah and from Luke, though, I wonder if there's more to this image than meets the eye. Sometimes the Christian life is like a straightforward endurance race. But then there are the times when people want to throw us down into an old cistern, like they did to Jeremiah because they don't like what we say. To make matters worse, the way Jesus tells it in Luke, these enemies may even be members of our own household. So we have this great cloud of witnesses, but their watching isn't so much a pure athletic performance as, as a complex battle on multiple fronts. The saints are cheering us on, interceding for us, but many times the people on the ground with us are doing everything in their power to get in the way. Or so it might seem. There's a difference, after all, between the open hatred of Jeremiah's enemies and the, the family member who loves you but does not share all the same values. The spiritual battle on this front rarely has clear winners and losers, good guys and bad guys. Often, in fact, the hardest battles are between competing goods, 
Jesus knows this, which is why he points it out to the shock of his audience. First century Jews valued family. The family was good, central. Having children, educating them, teaching them Torah was itself the divine vocation of Israel, to be a light to the nations, a a priestly people in whom God's goodness could be on display. So for Jesus to imply that he might break up families suggests either that he is just an evil, crazy person bent on destroying everything good about God's holy people, or that he is God. Because only God himself could come before family in the right ordering of priorities. Jesus' hard teaching here on family division is an important balance to the story in Jeremiah that I filtered through Hebrews. In other words, it's pretty easy to see ourselves as Jeremiah, as the good guy. It's easy to see ourselves as, you know, the star athlete on the field, or or better, the, the beloved underdog who nobody thinks will win, but who believes in himself so strongly and so rightly that he puts everybody else to shame. There's a kind of allure to unpopularity, to being in the righteous minority, to feeling like you're the one person doing the right thing in a sea of wrong. To put it bluntly, it's tempting to think that the more people are against you, the more you must be right. That is, I'll admit, kind of how I felt back on that day in high school. There's an energy in dissent. You can see this all over the place. Part of the draw of so-called woke politics is its transgression of traditional boundaries. It's an awesome feeling to stand there in opposition to received wisdom when you're convinced that you understand the truth that nobody else could see until now. And the more people argue against you, the more convinced you are on the rightness of your position. Sometimes progressive Christians in these areas invoke the language of prophecy. To be prophetic must mean having a lot of people dislike what you're saying. But of course, this goes both ways. The prophetic rhetoric of progress can be mimicked by its detractors, especially when what was once progressive has become mainstream. Before I became Catholic, as many of you know, I was part of the kind of noble opposition, if you will, in the Episcopal Church, the lone prophetic voice crying in the wilderness for the traditional faith. I think in many ways the things I stood for were were right, but again I have to admit that there was a certain self-righteousness in being in the minority. I, I imagine that there are Catholics today of various perspectives who find themselves in that position. Maybe you're the one person defending Pope Francis in a sea of angry traditionalists. Maybe you're the one person defending traditional worship and values in a sea of happy, clappy modernists. And there's a sense of pride in knowing that you are courageously standing on the right side of history. Back to 17-year-old me, was I brave? In the end, I don't really know, maybe a little. I have my doubts. The reason is that bravery or courage 
that is the virtue of courage, requires taking risks and overcoming obstacles for the sake of something good. This is pretty basic moral theology, but it's important. Martyrs for the faith, true courage. The person who is so brave for declaring their sexual preference in public, eh, probably not courage. Loving Jesus and following him in the face of family opposition, true courage. Having a lot of fun saying nasty things about people you've never met, not courage. In other words, popularity or unpopularity, being in the majority or the minority, none of that really accounts for very much when it comes to weighing moral goodness. God's creation was good and holy in the Garden of Eden without any conflict. The saints enjoy the beatific vision, unencumbered by any ideas of whether or not they were on the right side of history, for they are at the heart of history and the heart of history's Lord. And that ultimately is where we should be headed, to Jesus and nowhere else. Let us set aside every weight, Hebrews says, the weight of sin, of course, but also the weight of being popular or being unpopular and persecuted, the weight of the many good things that we have been given but that are not ultimately ours, the weight of trying to manage history in the right direction, the weight of whatever it is that in our pride we think we need. Setting these things aside, we look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Cheered on by angels and saints, Above all, our Blessed Mother, who prays for us both now and in the hour of our death, if we keep our eyes on the goal, God will give us the grace to persevere and to encounter just the kind of opposition or encouragement that we need to reach the finish line. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Stolen Maniple podcast. For more information on our church and upcoming events, please visit Augustine of Canterbury.org. And don't forget to subscribe to hear future episodes.